Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of body horror and stigmatization of mental illness. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sebastian was fully geeking out when he was asked to be part of the Loftus Hall renovation. People might have thought it was a bit strange for anyone to have a passion for parquet floors, but the now derelict manor house had some of the most beautiful examples of historical parquet he'd ever seen. The poor things had been exposed to the elements and vandalism for decades, and they were in desperate need of some tender loving care. Sebastian took his job seriously, and he often stayed late finishing sections of the floor so the other workers wouldn't get impatient. He was just sealing some panels near a staircase when he heard a baby crying. He went searching room to room. Sometimes kids played in abandoned areas, but this child sounded far too young to be wandering on its own. It could become trapped in between the boards. His blood ran cold as he stepped closer to the sound. It wasn't in the walls. It was in the floor. His beautiful floors, hours of work, centuries of history. A child couldn't have gotten down under there. Could it? The screaming was near deafening now. He covered his ears, but they still rang. His heart heavy. He set his flashlight on the ground and brought his restoration tools to the floor, chiseling as quickly and carefully as he could. Bit by bit, he removed parts of the floor. The cries grew louder, but all that he found underneath was darkness and dust. He climbed into the cavern. Then his flashlight went dark. The cries changed into gurgling chortles. Then a darker laughter, more adult. Unnerved, he dropped his tools to the side and stood up, squinting into the darkness. He didn't see the errant board left teetering behind him. He didn't see how it lined up perfectly with his chisel, now impossibly angled, sharp side up. All he heard was the laughter as an invisible hand gave him the slightest push. It was the last thing he heard at all. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Ireland's Loftus Hall, a 14th century manor house that's said to have played host to the devil himself. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted.
The Hook Peninsula juts out from the southeastern region of Ireland. The peninsula is razor thin, but strategically important. It offers an effective position to defend the entrance to the River Barrow, the estuary that leads to Waterford. While it's better known for its crystal, Waterford was a major target for Oliver Cromwell during his invasion of the island. He swore to take the town by hook or by crook, referring to the peninsula and the small town of Crook on the opposite side of the estuary. The Hook Peninsula and Ireland overall has always been a target for invaders and occupiers. In the mid-12th century, a Norman knight named Raymond Le Gros was given part of the peninsula as a reward for his battle prowess. He built a castle there in 1170. When control of the region was returned to the Irish, the Redmond family took over the castle, eventually knocking it down in 1350 to make a grand manor house that became known as Redmond Hall. Redmond Hall's strong strategic position put it at the center of several important battles during the Irish Confederate Wars. But by the 1650s, the English had fully conquered the area, and the Redmond's estate was acquired by the English Loftus family. In 1666, Henry Loftus and his family made the home their primary residence, eventually renaming the manor after themselves. In the mid-1700s, Anne Loftus, the family's remaining heir, married Charles Tottenham. They had six children together, including a daughter also named Anne. Tragically, the elder Anne passed away while her children were still young, and Charles remarried. Charles's new wife, Jane, was not close with her stepchildren. The younger Anne saw the potential for escape from her stepmother when a mysterious suitor came her way. But a disturbing discovery taught her that there are some forces even worse than family. It was bitterly cold outside. Even inside, Anne could see her breaths in tiny white puffs. She wrapped herself in a cloak and stood next to the fire, trying to keep the chill from seeping into her toes. There had been a knock at the door several minutes earlier. Normally, she would have been curious about what visitor could hold her father up when their house was full of guests. Tonight, however, the cold kept her close to the fire. Whoever he was, he finally entered, with a chorus of gasps and murmurs from the crowd of invited guests. The excitement of it wasn't enough to get her to leave the comfort of the hearth. But he came to her. A servant draped a blanket over him. Rivulets of water slid from his shoes towards the fire, extinguishing the embers. He brought the cold with him. A gust of sea air lingered around the fireplace. Anne clutched her cloak tighter, watching as some of the closer flames died. The man introduced himself as David. Anne smiled politely and gave him her name, but she didn't turn her head to meet his gaze. He stepped closer to her, far closer than a gentleman should, but to take a step back would mean leaving the only comfort she'd been able to find in the freezing house. So she stayed. This time, she got a good look at him. He was tall, towering over her with several inches to spare. His hair was too long, falling into his eyes. In the low light, it almost looked like his eyes were bleeding. But they changed again before her eyes, becoming a cold gray like the sea. 
They talked for several moments, pleasantries mostly. She commented on the state of his clothing, and he got quiet. He studied the flames and explained softly that he had been the only survivor of a shipwreck. David was on the deck when it had happened. The waves crashed against the sides of the boat, flooding the decks with seawater. People had slipped, tripping into one another on the slick wood. His best friend, James, had been pulled underwater by the waves. Like giant grasping fingers, they had found him near the edge of the boat and taken him. David desperately reached out to save him, but the ocean was a cruel mistress. She took James, and she wanted David, too. David had sputtered, trying to keep his head above water, but a coil of rope tangled around his legs. He kicked and pushed, twisting his body this way and that. His limbs grew tired, his chest ached. The weight of the water consumed him, and it had all gone black. He woke on the shoreline. Pieces of the boat had washed up alongside him. Amongst the debris, he saw some stray limbs lying in the sand. Beside him, James's bloated face glared at him in waterlogged judgment. David swore he'd never forget the sight. Anne grasped David's hand tightly, devastated by his story. She told him that James could never have judged David for finding a way to survive. David wasn't so convinced that he had survived. The Bible said that hell was a fiery place, but fire had never scared him as much as the cold, fathomless depths of the ocean. Perhaps this was some sort of purgatory. He stumbled for hours in the cold until he'd found Loftus Hall and begged for a night's shelter. Luckily, Anne's father had been merciful. Anne smiled at David, touched that fate had somehow brought them together. She took her leave of him for the night, hoping that he would be in the breakfast parlor when she woke up. To Anne's great joy, he was. Still recovering from his ordeal, David took up residence with the Tottenhams. Two weeks passed by in the blink of an eye. One evening, he asked if he could accompany her to the card party that night. She shyly agreed. As she dressed for the party, Anne told her maid that she and David were swiftly moving towards a proposal. Being the wife of a naval captain was an exciting prospect, but there were moments when she had her doubts. Not about the proposal, but about David. His eyes would bleed around her. Giant clots collecting around his iris, they were there and then gone again. He always smelled of salt and soot, even after his morning ablutions. When he spoke of the sea, his hands clenched into fists and his voice lost all of its warmth. She was afraid of him in those moments. In those moments, she saw the captain that had killed people and tortured others in the name of king and country. It frightened her that power he had to see people as less than human. She was terrified that at some point she would say the wrong thing and he would speak to her the way he spoke about the rest of the world. Still, he was a captain. There was a decent chance that he would be largely out at sea 
and she could continue in the manner of life to which she was accustomed. She did care for him, and they never had an argument. Perhaps she was his beautiful exception. She wore her finest dress for the card party. As the party started, David was her partner in whist and studied her cards carefully. When she was satisfied with her choice, she slid her card onto the table. They lost the first round. A tightness grew around David's eyes. She resolved to do better in the next round, to coax a smile from his face. They lost again. David clutched the cards tighter and smiled apologetically. This had never been her favorite game. He returned her smile coldly. She played her next hand. Again, a loss. The room was growing too hot. The stays of her dress pressed against her ribs uncomfortably, making breathing a struggle. If she wasn't careful, she would faint. Anne made her excuses and left the table. Someone more suited to cards could fill in for her. She searched for a spot closer to the door. There were too many people in the room. Her breath started to stutter in her chest. The ivory and maroon brocaded paper on the walls was sinking, the ceiling dropping lower as the walls began to close in on her. She clutched the railing of a chair for support, swaying. The wallpaper design started to drip onto the floor. She couldn't escape. And then David was in front of her, clutching her arm a little too tightly. He told her she was embarrassing herself and him. She glanced down to her arm, seeing a pattern of white and gray fur where she had expected his skin to be. She tried to pull his hand away, but he was stronger than she had realized. That coldness she had seen in his eyes was finally directed at her. Something like lightning flashed in his pupils. He smelled so strongly of salt that her nose burned. He yanked her back over to the table. Anne sat in the chair she'd left moments ago because she couldn't breathe and felt her chest clench again. There was something not quite human about David. Anne slowly shuffled through her cards. He barked at her to play one hand down. She glanced at her opponents, but no one seemed to have noticed his anger but her. Perhaps they just didn't care. They lost the round. Somewhere, something stomped its hoof. Perhaps the carriage horses were growing restless, sensing an oncoming storm. She played her next card. She heard it again, clear as day, as though some cloven-footed creature was right beside her, preparing to crush her head between his hoof and the parquet floor. She allowed herself to contemplate the impossible, but wasn't brave enough to raise her head to look at the man. No, the thing she considered marrying. And swallowed tightly. She held her breath as everyone else took their turn. A win. There was no sense of relief that accompanied it. Just a lingering feeling of dread. She picked her next card carefully, her hands shaking as she placed it down. The strangled sound of an animal dying emanated from somewhere close to her. She could hear the wet gurgling. 
but there were no animals in the card room. Belatedly, she realized it wasn't an animal at all. It was a person, one of their opponents in whist. He clutched at his throat. From between the gaps in his fingers, she could see blood blooming from the inside out, his veins trying to crawl out of his skin. David played his cards on the table. Another win! and tried to call for help, but the words got stuck in her throat. No one had even noticed the man's distress. David was playing as though the game had just continued. She picked another card. The hoof struck the ground again. The noise startled her. She dropped her card. Her eyes darted around the space before she saw it peeking out from beneath the tablecloth and bent down to pick it up. She lingered as she noticed that David didn't have the legs of a human anymore. They were shaped more like a goat's. She screamed, her brain registering the sound only after she made it. The table disintegrated. Water and ice seeped up from the floorboards. The temperature in the room dropped swiftly. And though the water was rising rapidly, Anne couldn't take her eyes from David. He had transformed into a half-goat-like creature. Lightning was flashing in his eyes. She caught the slashes of white against a dark purple background. He blew her a kiss, and then he shot up into the sky, tearing a hole through the ceiling, and collapsed, hitting her head against dry wood. According to legend, Anne Tottenham's encounter with the devilish stranger left a hole in the roof to Loftus Hall that could never be fully patched or repaired, even to this day. She is said to have lost consciousness as the man flew through the ceiling. According to the Loftus Hall website, when Anne woke up, she went into a state of shock and madness. Up next, we'll learn how shock and madness were handled in the 18th century as Anne Tottenham meets a tragic fate. Now, back to the story. Charles Tottenham found himself at his wit's end with his daughter Anne. Her hold on reality seemed loose at best. He had living quarters set up for her in her favorite place in Loftus Hall, the tapestry room, as a means of trying to keep her calm with mixed success. Anne had always felt trapped by circumstance. She had devoted her life to walking finely enough along the lines of decorum to be safe, protected. Then a demon had crashed through her life. She spent several days at the card table. She would not get up to use the chamber pot or eat. She couldn't fathom the idea of moving. Her eyes lingered on the hole in the roof. Her father swore was simply a result of rain from the storm. Pieces of the ceiling drifted down onto the card table, like falling leaves. Anne barely noticed them. She was lost in her own thoughts. The flames of hell were supposed to come from below, not above. Perhaps David had been right when he said this place was purgatory. Perhaps Dante's circles of hell were out of order. Perhaps hell was here, and her sins were far greater than David's. She couldn't think of any, but there must have been something, 
why else would she suffer so? She waited for flames to enshroud her, cinders shooting through the sky. But when they didn't come, she didn't know what to do with herself. The servants tried to clean around her, but she screamed at them. This room was a sacred space now. They had no right to be here, touching things, disturbing the order of it. Anne was unprepared when the men came for her. Four of them, one for each limb, holding her so tightly that she could feel bruises sprouting on her arms. They dragged her from the chair. She flailed, attempting to free herself from their grasp, but they held tight. She tried to use her position in the house. She tried to bribe them with whatever she could think of, but they did not pay her attention. They marched forward like a funeral procession. Large burn marks laced themselves up the sides of her legs as they pulled her down the hall and locked her away. She begged them to look to see what David was doing to her. They didn't care. They placed her on the floor of the tapestry room, the only room in her new home she didn't hate, the only one her stepmother hadn't made her gaudy mark on. It was too old to be changed too old and too timeless all at once. She crawled to the corner of the room, tucking her knees up to her chest. She listened for any sign of life in the house, any indication that the world outside still existed. It was eerily silent, as if the world had agreed to forget about her. No one came to visit. The sun fell and rose again. Eventually, someone brought her a plate of food. Anne dug at the cold pieces of meat, as though they were the finest delicacy. She licked the plate clean and placed it by the door. Then, she resumed her position. In her mind, nothing could get her if she kept her back to the wall. She would be able to see any potential threat coming. The days bled together. She could no longer tell if the sun or the moon was shining through her window, only that the light hurt her eyes. It reminded her too much of David as he ascended into the unknown. She wanted it gone. She asked the servant that brought her food if something could be done about the light. He told her the room had no windows. But that was ridiculous. She had seen the planets rising and falling against her wall. The servant blinked at her in confusion. He walked over and touched the wall. The light started to fade and hunched in on herself. She told him that David wasn't allowed to be in here, not anymore. The servant raised an eyebrow at her. His features shifted around his face, his eyes growing larger and his nose much smaller. If she squinted, she could almost see David looking back at her. Slowly, she crept towards her corner. She watched the servant closely, looking for more of David in him. But his features faded in and out, like a painting splashed with water. It made her dizzy. She clutched at her stomach, and the servant came closer, bringing her plate with him. A voice in her head told her that the food might be poisoned. When it was within reach, she batted the plate away. The pieces of meat flew across the room like mosquitoes searching for blood. 
The servant gathered up the remains of Anne's supper and skulked out of the room. But before he left, his head detached from his body. It floated over to her, whispering in her ear that she should be quieter. She swatted at it, and the head disappeared, like a cloud of smoke, particles of David floating around the room, stray dust in the shape of her tormentor. Anne slept in short bursts, if she did sleep. With nothing much to look at, she sometimes struggled to discern whether she was in the dream or waking world. So she made some rules for herself. If the walls were crumbling around her, it was a dream. If the floor made a soft scraping sound when she scratched it, it was reality. If a man was inside the room with her, it could be either. Sometimes, the man who entered her chamber was the servant. Other times, he was David. On rare occasions, he wasn't a man at all, but a beast with large orange wings and crimson red horns jutting out of the skull. He'd bite at her, his teeth and widening jaw more like a snake than a human, and would wake from these dreams with marks all over her skin and droplets of blood dotting the floor. She scraped her fingernails down to the bone, drawing patterns on the walls, the dark swirling waves of the ocean, the flames that licked her body noon and night. Anne would pick open her scabs, smearing more blood on the wall. She drew the lost crew, their dread captain watching, waiting from the shoreline. A crash, and turned at the sound. A two-headed man greeted her, neither of their faces familiar. Pieces of meat and ceramic mixed on the floor. The flies in the room moved to fresh prey. Anne didn't move, instead, she studied the flies, their little legs moving against the pieces of meat on the floor, the ones that weren't already covered in mold and house maggots. She stood up. Something moved beneath her skin. More maggots, probably. But she hadn't bothered to try and dig them out of her. Her bones strained inside her painfully as her withered muscles screamed in protest. It had been so long since she had stood. Her dress was in tatters, stained with her blood and sweat. The movement of walking felt foreign to her, but she needed to meet this man. She studied him, her head cocked. Two of his four eyes closed. He muttered something about just being the help. She laughed bitterly. There was no help here. The devil had come to roost. He'd left his mark on the house and on her. The notches of her spine cracked as she bent down. The man stayed where he was. She checked his feet. They were not hooves, nor were there any roots holding him in place or any strong gust of wind preventing him from leaving. She almost felt sorry for him. Almost. But she had been broken and reborn in this room. She hadn't been able to see it earlier, but the scratching on the walls had cleared her mind. David had left because he had found her. She was to carry on his work. It made the others afraid of her. She was beginning to like that. 
Anne's hand closed around a shard of broken ceramic. It dug into her fingers, causing her fingers to sting, and then almost slip off on the blood. But she didn't notice the pain anymore. It had become her friend, her tool for enlightenment. She tisked softly to herself as she rose, and kissed the man's cheek, tasting only air beneath her lips. She told him that salvation was coming. Then she stabbed the shard into the man's throat. As she ripped it free, blood sprayed forth, coating the wall with a shiny new paint. Anne Tottenham was imprisoned in Loftus Hall until her death in the early 1770s. Her cause of death is unknown and reports of her treatment within the confines of the tapestry room vary. Some sources claim that she never ate or drank. Others say that she never spoke a word again. The only thing we do know for sure is that the family thought it would be better if she were kept out of sight. Her living body may have agreed with them, but her ghost has been anything but quiet. Loftus Hall staff have reported sightings of a ghostly Anne on the opulent grand staircase, as well as the clop of hoofbeats around the house. Coming up, Anne Tottenham's death leaves an impression in more ways than one. Now, back to the story. After her nervous breakdown, Anne Tottenham was confined to a single room at Loftus Hall until her death in the early 1770s. But shortly after her passing, strange phenomena were reported throughout the house. Objects moved, furniture shook, and unexplained sounds echoed through the halls. Loftus Hall had its very own poltergeist. The Tottenhams were Protestant, but as the activity intensified and their Protestant pastors were at a loss, the family was forced to do the unthinkable. They brought in a Catholic priest. Loftus Hall needed to be exercised. If you asked any Englishman, he would say the Irish loved the Pope. Papists all, he'd quip, before suggesting that the channel wasn't worth crossing anyway. The Irish preferred to keep their distance from the English. It was far more preferable to what had come before, the occupation, the murders, the stripping of rights and titles. The intermingling between the Irish and the English, especially in the South, left a wound that was not so easily healed. The Loftus and Tottenham family were squarely Protestant. But Loftus Hall was haunted, and not in a quaint legend way, in an ear-shattering noises and furniture being thrown across the room way. The family feared they had been cursed. Poor, tragic Anne Tottenham had died only a year before, and the girl seemed unwilling to rest. If it was Anne at all, the servants who had dealt with her towards the end refused to believe that the quiet and browbeaten girl would make such a racket in death. But no matter what the cause of the disturbances, they needed help. They sought Protestant pastors from as far away as Belfast, but each man in turn either threw up his hands or refused to come at all. Anne's stepmother told her husband 
they needed to contemplate the unthinkable. The Catholics had rules for these things. Rules to bind whatever was attacking the family. Perhaps it didn't matter if they didn't believe. As long as the papist priest did, maybe there was hope. The exorcist, Father Broders, was a small man. Unassuming in his cassock and collar, he and his mop of sandy blonde hair looked far too young to wage spiritual battle. But he got to work right away, walking the whole of Loftus Hall, asking every question under the sun. Had objects flown here? Where did the noises seem loudest? Did they ever pray in this room? And if so, where? It made Jane, the newly minted Mrs. Tottenham, and the deceased Anne's stepmother, feel as if she'd been doing something wrong from the beginning. She disliked the thought immensely and quickly excused herself, leaving the priest to his work. That night, she was visited by a growling apparition, which pulled her bedclothes away from her body with great force. She squeezed her eyes shut and waited for it to be quiet. She only had to deal with this for one night more, if the priest knew what he was doing. The next morning at breakfast, she was dismayed to learn that the priest had seen nothing. He asked Mrs. Tottenham if she slept well. She had to admit she did not. While it felt admittedly untoward, he requested a rather unorthodox arrangement. Would Mrs. Tottenham consider joining him in the tapestry room tonight? Whatever force had attacked her would surely appear after dark, and he would be able to end the thing once and for all. Her husband could join her in the room, of course, if he desired. But Charles Tottenham did not desire, which left the young priest and the new Mrs. Tottenham alone in the tapestry room on a cold, stormy night. Mrs. Jane Tottenham sat on the bed, Anne's bed. She tried to nurse Anne herself at first, but soon the scratches and screams and spoiled food thrown at her face and chest were too much for her. Still, some part of her hoped whatever was haunting them wasn't her stepdaughter. She wanted the girl to be at peace. But a small voice spoke in her mind, deep and honeyed. There was no peace, not here, not ever. The priest wasn't welcome. Jane shook her head. All she heard was the buzzing of a fly. Father Broders cast holy water about the room. He began to chant in Latin. Jane didn't recognize his speech, but she also only barely remembered the rosary. There was that voice again, laughing, purring. So devout, wasn't she? So close to God. Jane felt lightheaded. She sat back on the bed. Father Broders eyed her, but continued his pattern, muttering his incantations. But they weren't magic, far from it. The Lord's word wasn't pagan magic. Why had she thought that? Something inside her smiled, revealing sharp teeth. Funny little priest, wasn't he? So earnest. He didn't believe her about that night. No one did. She was alone and would never leave this room, just like the daughter she'd never had. The candles went out, plunging the room into eerie darkness. 
The rain and rolling thunder were all that remained to assure them they were still in the human world. The priest continued his Latin. A laugh echoed around the space. Only moments later did Jane realize it had come from her. Then, and only then, did the father turn his head. Well, hello, the voice purred. The priest asked her if she was all right. He called her Mrs. Tottenham. But which one, Jane thought? Anne or Jane? Anne or Anne? The poor mother or her mad woman daughter? He asked her her name. He just called her Mrs. Tottenham. He knew her name. What was he playing at? Flames leapt up in the fireplace. At least someone was taking care of her. It was frigid in here. She felt ice crystals forming in her throat each time she breathed. The priest asked her name again. Silly man, she thought. He knows my name. Everyone knows my name. I'm the lady of the manor. The exorcist's face was pale and sweaty. Jane suggested kindly that he lie down. He'd overextended himself. He was now brandishing a cross. How vulgar. The Latin was louder. The demands were more impolite. All Jane did was laugh and laugh and laugh. The storm swelled outside, and she swore she could feel some part of herself tearing open somewhere deep inside, revealing something raw and vulnerable. Still, she laughed, or rather, her body laughed. She was getting smaller and smaller, drowning in the blackness that still clutched at her from the very edge of the candle's soft light. But that infernal Latin rattled around her mind like a songbird caught in a closet. He kept asking her name. Was it her name? He knew her name. What other name was there? Anne. It must be Anne he was asking about. Poor Anne. Jane should have done more. The honeyed voice sneered over its sharp fangs. Am I my daughter's keeper? The priest blinked at her. Had she said that out loud? The Latin screeched around her mind. A nightbird now. The exorcist named the voice. He whose deeds were evil, while his brothers were righteous. He who slew Abel. Cain. Something screamed within her, raked its claws at her insides, as it went down, down, down. The fire leapt up, then fell, burning to ash and ember in front of her eyes. Father Broders lit another candle. He stepped close to her, examining her eyes. He asked her to say the rosary. She cried, saying she didn't remember. He helped her along. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jane closed her eyes and breathed deep, listening for the honeyed laugh the snap of sharp teeth. Thy kingdom come. But all she heard was the rain. Thy will be done. The rain and the Father's voice. On earth as it is in heaven. Waiting for her. Bringing her home. The exorcism seemed to have worked. 
The activity at Loftus Hall slowed to ghostly appearances from Anne and the mysterious sounds of hoofbeats echoing around the manor and nothing more. Passive haunts compared to the terror that preceded it. Father Thomas Broders died in January 1773. His grave bears a simple epitaph. Here lies the body of Thomas Broders, who did good and prayed for all and banished the devil from Loftus Hall. As with many homes in Europe, Loftus Hall has seen many tales of sorrow simply as a result of its long occupation by humans. But something changed in the 1700s. A strategically important manor house became the source of a much darker legend. It was tragically common for noble families to imprison and conceal disabled family members. But Anne Tottenham's case and its fallout left a lasting impression on the building. The last Loftus to occupy the estate, John Henry Wellington Graham Loftus, the fourth Marquess of Ely, died suddenly and childless in 1889. Even if the Marquess had had children, Loftus Hall's financial state was precarious. The property fell to his cousin, who decided to sell the home rather than take on a role as a lord of the manor. In 1917, Loftus Hall was converted into a convent and later a girls' school, then was converted into a hotel by a new owner in 1983. The venture didn't survive to the new millennium. Loftus Hall fell into disrepair, with many of its finishes and rooms undergoing damage from both vandalism and the elements. The building opened up for paranormal tours in 2012, and restoration continues to be funded by the fees for these after-dark investigations. But if you do choose to participate, keep your surroundings in mind. Perhaps a bit of holy water or a blessing or two is in order. You never know when the devil will come to call. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Ireland's Loftus Hall, amongst the many sources we used, we found Loftus Hall's paranormal site, Loftus Hall After Dark, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>